Let's pray and ask for God's help again as we open the Word. Father, as we come now to your Word, we ask that you would give us the power to understand it. Give us grace to receive it as it is given to us from your very heart. These words are authoritative, and so we need to receive them. I ask, Heavenly Father, that you would quiet every anxious thought, that you would bring peace to those whose hearts are in turmoil. And for those who are seeking to be their own saviors functionally, that you would bring them to the end of that and help them to recognize that there is one who would, in fact, save them from all that troubles them. And that your call upon their heart at this moment, upon their life, is to lay it down and to truly follow you. For those who cannot shake that sense of guilt, the past failures and sins loom large. Oh, how I pray that the love of Christ and in particular, the love that he demonstrated to us at the cross would swallow up that great guilt. That they would know the forgiveness and relief that comes when you pronounce a full and free and eternal pardon. May they cease trying to cleanse their own hearts from that guilt but simply receive by faith the forgiveness that you offer and then rest. I pray for those, Father, who just feel overwhelmed with life. Would you give them strength today? Would you draw them above those circumstances and cause them to see you in your greatness? And because of all that you are, because of the great, unchanging, unfailing promises that you have given to them for this time, may they experience the power, the security, the joy that results from knowing you and trusting in you and not waiting for a, a change of circumstances or a different location, a, a different geography even. Those, those things never save us, only you. So I pray that you would meet that dear one right where he is, right where she is, that they may know that you are God. So help us as we return to your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we began a look at Mark 7, and we got through verse 13, where Jesus is actually engaged in a confrontation with the Pharisees and scribes, the religious leaders of his day, and, and they've come hunting him. They've got some issues that they want to work out with him. And so just by way of review, there were two particular concerns that these Pharisees and scribes shared with Jesus. The first is that there had been some kind of of spiritual contamination 
that the disciples had encountered in the marketplace, and they were not willing to wash their hands before they ate, like every other good Jewish person apparently was practicing at that point. The larger concern, though, is that Jesus and his disciples were disregarding the traditions that had been taught by the rabbis and handed down now through scribes and Pharisees such as they were. And so Jesus takes this opportunity to actually confront the hypocrisy right in front of him. And remember, he quoted from Isaiah saying, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And so we took a look last week at those attributes of hypocrisy. One of the the key thoughts of hypocrisy is that it is actually a kind of mask wearing, a masquerade, if you will. Hypocrites wear a mask by saying with their lips that they follow God or that they honor him, but actually their hearts are far from him. We also noted that the worship, as Jesus described, the worship of these people was in vain because they were elevating the teachings of people and rabbis above the very commandments of God, that brings us to the third characteristic. They actually departed from God's law because they were holding so tenaciously to the traditions of men that the word of God was diminished in its value and its presence. And finally, they were in practice invalidating the very word of God because they were more intent on establishing their own traditions. And so we asked the question last week, is there a contradiction between what you appear to be, as was true of these Pharisees and scribes, as what you appear to be before others, and what God really knows you to be. Nobody wants to be a hypocrite, but we very often end up in that place. Many reasons why. Could be fear, could be lack of understanding, could be pride. It's probably a combination of that and many other things as well. But as we come to Mark 7, we want to resume our study today in verse 14. And so I invite you to follow along here because Jesus wants to get to the heart of the matter. Jesus wants to get to the heart of the matter. So you follow along in your text, Mark 7, verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to him, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus, and this is Mark's insertion, thus he declared all foods clean. Verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. One little sidebar here, very briefly. Some of you are reading an English translation that omits verse 16, or maybe it includes it and puts it in parentheses and then has a little marginal note. And I just want to address this because I actually think this is the type of thing that comes up in discussion sometimes with people who say, well, the Bible has errors in it and there are things that have been inserted and things that have been left out. And, you know, one of the challenges of, of 
being true to the word that God has given us is to take the text that was originally given, in this case the New Testament, in Greek, and hit the target language, which in our case is English. And this has been done over a couple of thousand years now. Now what's really fascinating is even in the last century there have been more old manuscripts uncovered. Some of you have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. That would be an example. And we actually have thousands of manuscripts that are available to us today. Some of them written in Latin, some of them written in Greek, some of them written in Hebrew, and it goes way, way back. And when you compare all of these manuscripts, you will occasionally find some discrepancy. 95% of those discrepancy, discrepancies have to do with things like pronouns. They don't alter the meaning. They don't change the big message. They don't change any, any doctrinal points. It's just a matter of my saying, you know, yesterday Kristen and I uh, ran some errands together and my daughters joined us. Or I say, you know, yesterday Kristen and I ran some errands and Kate and Haley joined us. So it's the difference between saying my daughters and then using their actual names. Most of the discrepancies are of that nature where if you read it, you're like, it means the same thing. We're talking about the same people doing the same stuff. Well, what we have here in verse 16 is in all likelihood the insertion of either a little marginal note that a scribe would have put in. And if you take time to look at this in particular, you'll notice back in chapter 4 of Mark 9, or, or Mark 4, verse 9, and Mark 4, verse 23, there is the same terminology or the same phrase is used. And so in comparing all these manuscripts, there, there are a few that include what is verse 16 for us and others where it seems to be missing. But again, it would be example. It doesn't change the message of what Jesus says. It may have been somebody recording this and saying, this sounds as urgent as what we read back in chapter 4. And then the next person who got the copy wasn't sure if it's a marginal note written by the scribe who just preceded him or an actual Bible verse, and somewhere along the line it got inserted in the main text of some of these manuscripts. I say that just because we need to be open and honest about these things and recognize that sometimes there are discrepancies, but it, it doesn't change the meaning, and it should not undermine your confidence in the text. Uh, it is quite remarkable. One of these days, we'll, maybe we can do a, an equip class just on how did we get the, the English Bibles that we use. That'd be a really great study for us all. But I say that because some of you say, uh, you skipped a verse when you read that. That's because I'm using the ESV, but if you're reading from the New American Standard or the King James or the New King James, uh, you'll see verse 16, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. All right? So there's a, uh, there's a little more technical piece of information for you as you look at this text. Now to the heart, though, of the message and what Jesus is seeking to do. What really defiles us? That's the question in front of us this morning. That's the question in front of Jesus and his disciples and the Pharisees and the scribes. And again, just by way of review, they were living in a time where it was being taught that you could actually incur spiritual defilement simply by touching either the wrong people or touching food with unwashed hands. All kinds of crazy things that were being taught. And Jesus is using this opportunity to correct some really uh, so, so, some really erroneous thinking and practice. 
And so in verses 14 to 16, I want you to see there's a solemn pronouncement. Jesus uses these words, hear me, all of you, and understand. It's a way of drawing attention to a really important truth. He's calling us to listen intently. And here is the main point, verse 15. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But, and here's the corrective, the things that come out of a person are what defile him. So you catching this? They're worried about eating with unwashed hands because if they contracted something in the marketplace of a spiritual nature, they're not talking about bugs and germs and viruses. This isn't spoken or th this debate doesn't unfold, you know, at the height of flu season where we're talking about spreading those kinds of germs. We're talking about spiritual defilement. And what Jesus is doing at this particular point is actually nullifying the tradition of the elders. Remember I showed you a picture of the Mishnah? Now, they didn't have printed books in that day. That would come later, but this is an example, a modern example of, of the tradition that many Jews would still live by. But you know what Jesus is doing by stating these things? When he says there's nothing outside of you that by going into you can defile you, he just did that. Now, this would have made some people really angry. To this point, the Jews have been taught and believed that spiritual defilement is an external thing. It's almost like physical disease. You could catch it. You can contract it. It could be contagious in the marketplace. And coupled with the fact that under Moses, there were actually certain foods that God set off limits for a time, as we will see here in a moment. You can understand, we should be a little sympathetic with these dear people as to how this system of religion would morph into something so burdensome. Jesus is confronting and correcting the thinking that defilement is chiefly an environmental problem. There's a powerful point even for you who are parenting children. You want your children to be godly. We, we got to start today, so to speak, praying with the Millers for God's blessing over their little ones. I don't care what age your children are. I don't care what age you are. You can't think of spiritual defilement as something that's out there. As if you wander thoughtlessly into the wrong place, you might get it. Or as the Jews thought, you go into the marketplace and you actually rub shoulders with a Gentile, you're, undefi you're defiled. Now what Jesus is going to show us is something that actually is more frightening. Because if godliness were simply a matter of staying away from all the bad stuff that's out there, then you could build yourself into a kind of Christian fortress and, and keep the world and defilement and all that ugly stuff out there. But that's not reality, is it? Jesus is confronting and correcting this thinking because the truth is the things that come out of a person, as he says uh, right here in verse 15, that's what defiles us. So let's go to Jesus' personal explanation. Look at verses 17 uh, to 19. First of all, in verse 17, when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Now remember, just, just a moment before, he has said, hear me, all of you, and understand. And they missed it. Now, again, kind of a backdoor encouragement. I'm so glad that even the disciples are human enough at certain points where they just don't get it. 
And they got to ask Jesus for clarification. And you and I need that sometimes too. That's what happens when you open your Bible some mornings or some evenings and you're reading it and you're like, I'm just not getting it. And there's a little echo sometimes in my mind of the Lord as if he, you know, is present there and says, are you still without understanding? And I have to go, yeah. And that's why I pray to the Holy Spirit. That's why you do as well, saying, help me understand this. But so what is Jesus' point? Well, this is my little way of summarizing it. Look at the text, though, verse 18. Then are you also without understanding? Now, verse 18, the second half, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Don't confuse biology and theology. They're worried about what's on their hands, the hands they use then to eat, as if somehow there can be a a spiritual defilement. One author writes, A parable cannot be understood from the outside, but only by entering into it and seeing the reality that depicts from within. The disciples are like a dog looking at the pointed finger of its master rather than the object to which the finger points. They are like people looking at the stained glass windows of a cathedral from the outside. Their sight and understanding are correspondingly dull and lifeless. The understanding of the law that Jesus desires is not related to physical sight or to mental awareness, but to the heart. The first part of that commentator's uh, thinking really relates to me. We have a dog. I've mentioned it in passing. Uh, she's a beautiful German shepherd, about seven years old, but it's exasperating me just sometimes. I mean, she's such a, a sweet-natured dog, and she's always eager to be with us and, and to do what we want. But I, I've stood in a number of settings pointing to something, and she can see my finger, but she can't make the connection that, you know, there's this imaginary line drawn from my finger, you know, to her bone in the yard or whatever the thing is. And she just is like... <sighs> And, and the disciples are a little bit like that right now. Jesus is pointing to truth, and they're just, they can't, they can't make the connection. So he's going to make it really plain for them. And he actually uses words here that describe a little bit of the digestive process. What goes in here makes its way through the system and then is expelled. And then Mark inserts this very helpful truth. Thus he declared all foods clean. And there's powerful stuff. We'll come back to that in a moment. But what Jesus is doing is to correct a misunderstanding that not only extended to food but to people. So the food and even the digestive process serve as a little bit of a parable right now. But they're actually people that are in view. And this won't be fully developed here in Mark's gospel. But it, it is a powerful moment and 20 to 30 years later, even after this moment, people with good intentions will still be wrestling with this idea that some foods are spiritually defiling. Peter's one of them. And you know, Peter had great influence on Mark in writing this gospel. I think that's probably part of the reason this little parenthetical thought occurs. But even years after this, Peter, Peter will wrestle as a committed Jewish follower of Jesus that he needs to maintain some of those Old Testament food laws. And this is the point where Jesus said, it's all good. It's all blessed. Paul picks up on this, interestingly enough, in 1 Timothy 4. And when he writes this letter, this is a letter written to uh, Timothy, who was pastor of the church of Ephesus. But notice this. 
He writes, The Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. There's demonic doctrine in the world today. Verse 2, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, and then listen to this, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Isn't it interesting that still, and in Paul's age and all the way up to this moment, there are religious groups, religious individuals who try to teach a doctrine of abstinence with a view of demonstrating or practicing a really zealous spirituality. And you might have grown up in a context where some religious leader that you respected said, you know, godly people don't eat this, or godly people don't drink that. And this is the moment where Jesus himself, as Mark says, and Paul alludes to here in 1 Timothy 4, made all things clean. So what do we need to be concerned about? Well, this brings us to the third big thought, Jesus' sobering instruction. Look at verse 20. What you and I really need to be concerned about this morning is not what goes into these physical bodies, but actually what comes out of us. The heart. And when the Bible speaks of the heart of a person, and as Jesus is referring to it here, he is speaking of the epicenter of who and what you are. We don't compartmentalize our lives. We're whole people. What things is he talking about? Well, there are a number of things listed, but the uncleanness and defilement, as this author writes, are matters of intention and the heart, not the violation of cultic rituals and formalities. And using the word cultic is more of just a general uh, things you do in worship. We're not talking about the scary occult or cults like the bazaar. We're just talking about using that term as far as uh, spiritual rituals. Now look again at the text of what Jesus says, verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Thirteen examples. Now while the Pharisees and scribes had developed their lists and catalogs of defiling activities, like going into the marketplace and inadvertently touching a Gentile, Jesus sets before us 13 examples of heart defilement, of real-life issues that lead us into all kinds of trouble. And if you look at this list very briefly, I want to make sure we understand the, the terms Jesus uses and the, the, the direction he is pointing us to. Evil thoughts just has to do with, with things that arise from within. You might even think of them in terms of purposes that you formulate. So it's not just random thoughts of evil. These are actually schemes or plans or ideas that you and I develop. The second thing Jesus notes, and he uses a very broad term for sexual immorality, a term that refers, as you see in the notes, to a variety of immoral practices that would include things like adultery, fornication, prostitution, and homosexuality. Theft, 
That's pretty straightforward. You don't have to know Greek or Hebrew to know what that term means. It means you take stuff that's not yours. Murder. Taking the life of another person. Adultery. And it is interesting that he uses the generic or a broader term, but now speaks specifically of this particular act of unfaithfulness in the context of marriage. Coveting, which is a reference to greed. Wickedness. That has to do with an evil disposition of malice or maliciousness. That is that that attitude that says, I don't like people and I want to do them harm. Deceit, which would be any kind of of fraudulent behavior or activity, that intention to mislead people. Then he uses the term sensuality, and that has to do with the absence of any restraint and an insatiable desire for pleasure, envy. It's an evil eye referring uh, to envy or even evil which corrupts others. Slander, verbally abusing someone, wounding their reputation by making an evil report. Then pride, uh, a word that we unfortunately all know well. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And at its root, uh, just a very literal translation of this word would convey the idea of, of showing above. Like I want to present myself as being better than other people. So it could be words, it could be actions, uh, but this is condemnable pride. And finally, foolishness. And foolishness is not just a lack of true wisdom, but I want to fill that out just a little bit. One author writes, it describes the dominant disposition of the man who is morally and spiritually insensitive. He does not know God, and he does not wish to know Him. That's why in the Psalms we read, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It's the height of foolishness. Now, this list is not comprehensive. It is representative. It's suggestive. But 13 examples of things that that dwell within our hearts, things that in and of themselves are defiling, things that come out of us, as Jesus says, and accomplish that true defilement. One commentator writes, the tragedy of man's having to sin reaches its demonic fulfillment in man's wanting to sin. There is no heart in which this radical evil has failed to take root. You're not an exception, and I'm not an exception. And we actually, as we study through the Gospel of Mark, need to stand in solidarity with these scribes and Pharisees, making sure that we don't commit the very kind of sin that they were guilty of that says, well, they're in a different class. And Lord, how I thank you that I am not like those self-righteous nutjobs. And when you think that way, you actually are them. Rather, as we read through the gospel, we need to be honest enough to say, the problem in me is the same. I've got a heart issue. I don't have a dirty hands issue. I don't have a lack of knowledge issue. Jeremiah the Old Testament prophet who wrote, mm, what, almost 600 years before this, 
He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately or incurably would be another way to translate that. Sick. Who can understand it? Don't you feel that way often? I do. I think there's a reflection of some of this in Romans 7 where Paul goes through that passage of saying, the things that I would do, that I know I should do, I don't do. And what I don't do, or or what I don't want to do, I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. Oh, incurably sick heart that I have. Paul asks the question, who will deliver us from this body of death? That's a great question. And you know, if the Pharisees and scribes had stopped in their tracks at this point and acknowledged that they were incurably sick from the heart, that this whole thing about washing your hands before they had a meal was not actually the the most essential practice to be focusing on, but rather the things that come from within that defile a person. If they had stopped in their tracks and, and cried out for mercy, Jesus would have had it for them at that moment. James touches on this thing of of what's really going on inside. James 4, verses 1 through 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You see, evil is not an environmental thing. That's why you don't wall yourself out from the world. Because if you just build a wall around your life and say, well, as long as we can keep the corruption and sin and defilement out there, I'll be okay. No, the problem is you, with your evil heart, are parked inside the walls of the fortress. It doesn't work. Verse 2, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And look at this, verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Sometimes your prayers are even selfishly sinful or sinfully selfish. And you see how God just says, you can't manipulate, even prayer, you can't manipulate in a way to get your own way. What makes these sinful desires so dangerous, Jerry Bridges writes, is that they dwell within our own heart. External temptations would not be nearly so dangerous were it not for the fact that they find this ally of desire right within our own breast. And what Jesus is doing is showing that God's law cannot be like spiritual gojo. Do you know what gojo is? It's it's the most wonderful cleaner on planet Earth, and there are variations of it. Some of you ladies say, I'm not familiar with Gojo. Are there some ladies here who would say, I know what Gojo is? You do? That's that's great. (laughs) Guys usually use it, though. You you keep it on that utility sink out in your garage or near your car stuff, right? Um, Because Gojo does what not many other cleaners on planet Earth can really do. It, like, gets the really gross stuff from under your nails. It comes out with Gojo. And it also softens your hands, you know, while you use it. (laughs) And I know every man here wants to have soft hands. So you use Gojo for the the really ugly, bad stuff. And sometimes we want to use God's word or our worship or our spiritual service like a kind of spiritual gojo, as if we can clean the really bad stuff out of our souls if 
if we use enough of that. So if I go to church enough, if I check enough Sundays off, like, see, I, man, I, I was at church 50 out of 52 Sundays last year. I'm clean. Not according to Jesus. I tithe faithfully. I even went beyond 10% of my income. I gave so generously and faithfully last year, I'm clean. Mm, not according to Jesus. I didn't use any bad words for six weeks. Not even some of the Christian curse words, as we sometimes call them. You know, those words that in and of themselves, they, they would never be edited out of a, a movie script. Uh, but the problem is they come from a heart that's sinfully angry, right? So you're not clean. See, none of that is what cleanses our souls. That's why Paul wrote in the letter to the Galatians, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. And it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. All your law-keeping, it doesn't justify you before God. That's exactly what Paul is stating there. Now, look at the text. We're done with the words of Jesus for a few more verses. In a sense, he leaves us hanging. All he's done is walk us right up to that place where if you're listening and you're tracking, and if you're understanding as he said you should be, you're just brought to the point of going, I'm defiled. Well, thankfully, that's not where the gospel of Mark ends. It's not where the gospel ends, but we're going to branch out from this uh, for just a few minutes, particularly as we prepare to, to share the Lord's table together. But I want to make sure that you're feeling the weight of this because there, there is strategy in what Jesus is doing. He wants to strip us of all excuse-making. He wants to strip us of all false security that we feel through our acts of self-righteousness. He wants to remove all of that blame that we are, are prone to build, blaming the environment we live in, blaming the people we work with, blaming the family members that we share household space with, as if defilement is something that we contracted from them or from those places. He wants to strip all of that away from us so that we will humbly acknowledge before Him we're defiled. And when you acknowledge before Him that you're defiled, He actually has the greatest solution to offer. I want to just walk you back through the Gospel of Mark. This is something I discovered this week. Never seen it before, and it was beautiful to me. In the Old Testament, do you know that there are actually four big categories of uncleanness that are discussed in Moses' law? The first is leprosy. The second is functions of reproduction. The third is death. And the fourth is food. Now, let me show you something, and, and you'll, some of you are already tracking there right now. Do you know in the Gospel of Mark... We've seen Jesus actually step into every one of these big categories and do something that was both unexpected and way outside the accepted norms. Do you remember when he healed the leper? In Mark 1, it actually says he touched him. And then the beautiful testimony of Scripture is that in touching him, he healed him. And the leper had actually said to him, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And the Bible says, moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will, that is, I am willing, be clean. 
be clean. Then we came to chapter 5. And a woman with an issue of blood, which would fall under the category of functions of reproduction. She'd been hemorrhaging for 12 years. She sneaks up to Jesus in the crowd because she's saying, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, he's so powerful to heal that, that I'll, be, I'll be made whole. And that's exactly what happens. Remember how Jesus didn't just let the power go, flow out of him without making a, a little public conversation and point? And he turns and says, who touched me? And he doesn't do it to, to condemn her or to, as the Pharisees and scribes might have done, say, you've defiled me. No, he actually speaks to her in a way that restores her in relationship to the public she's been cut off from because she's been unclean. And he makes her clean. And it's in that same moment that, that he actually interrupted the trip that he was already making with Jairus because Jairus had come and said, my daughter's at the point of death, please come and heal her. And while they're standing there, the report comes that his daughter has died. Well, Jesus doesn't stop and say, so sorry. No, he goes with Jairus, enters the room, and it says that he touches Jairus' daughter by the hand. So again, he's defiling himself according to uh, the, the tradition of the elders. He's defiling himself by touching a, a dead girl, but then he speaks to her those sweet, world, those sweet words, little girl, rise, and she does. Leprosy, functions of reproduction, death, those things that defile and make ceremony unclean, they're nothing to Jesus. And the fourth one is what he's dealing with here, that whole category of food. Now, he not only declares all food clean, but do you know what he just did for a Jew? And it's hard for us to fathom that because there really aren't too many foods in our diet that we are spiritually off limits, right, if any. And some of you are like, as a matter of fact, I can think of some that I ought to put off limits, but not for spiritual reasons. There are other issues there, right? But do you know for the Jew, when Jesus declared all food cleans, he actually liberated every one of their consciences. Can you imagine living under a system where he had to know at any given moment, is this food acceptable? Is the food itself clean? If the food is clean, are my hands clean? I mean, wouldn't you just sit down to a meal with some great paranoia all the time? Is God going to be mad at me? Did I wash them enough? Go use more gojo, honey. We're not sitting down. We don't want God to be angry. Jesus declares all of that food clean and presses this issue of cleanness of heart even deeper with a view of, of just releasing consciences that were bound. Oh, it's a marvelous moment. Now, here's what I want to carry you back to. We, we looked at Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately or incurably sick. Who can understand it? But you know, just a few verses below that in verse 14, Jeremiah cries out, Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Because he has the power to cure the incurable. Save me. Save me from all kinds of evil, from all kinds of defilement, from all kinds of immorality and envy and greed. And I mean, the, the, that list of 13 things could be extended by another thousand. And yet for God, he has the power to do it. If he saves, you will be saved. If he heals, you will be healed. If he cleanses you like a leper or the hemorrhaging woman or the dead daughter or even disciples whose consciences were bound, I mean, when he pronounces clean over you, you're clean. You're clean. So as we transition to the Lord's table, 
here's the verse that I, or verses that I, I want to just set before you. So powerful is this cleansing and healing that the writer of the letter to the Hebrews records for us these beautiful words. And, and he's summarizing the great priesthood and sacrifice of Jesus. And he says, so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place. We're doing it by faith today. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. And listen to this, for our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Let us hold tightly without wavering to this hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promises. So it's not about you and your, and, and your hand washing. It's not about the power of your, of your spiritual gojo. It's about the power of Christ, the blood that he shed, the actual washing that he works. And when he invites us to this table, and we're going to share a little piece of bread, which is a symbol of his broken body in a moment, and a little cup filled with a, just a, frankly, a not very generous portion. <laughs> but these are symbols. Lunch is coming. You need to take this bread and this cup as these very personal and powerful and, and real symbols as if they're coming directly from the hand of Jesus to you this morning, because they are symbols to encourage your faith that my body was broken for you. The price for your sins has been paid. My blood has been shed. Forgiveness is real. The cleansing and removal of guilt is as real as these symbols you hold in your hand. And you don't have to be a member of Gospel Hope Church to share this bread and this cup this morning, but you do need to be a follower of Jesus who says, I'm trusting him and him alone. I'm not trusting my hand washing or whatever spiritual ceremonies I could participate in today to, to cleanse my heart. My hope is in Jesus and his blood alone. And as you do, just let these words of Hebrews strengthen your heart even as God continues to just wash you. Christ's blood really does make you clean. And his washing with his pure water makes you whole.